Uh, one, two, three, four. Away we go. Woo! <laughs> Hello, ladies and germs, and welcome to another scintillating tale of planetary from the fine folks at Never Stay Dead. I am one of two co-hosts, Matt, along with my good friend who sounds like this. Hey, hey, it's Damien, sometimes known as Sleepy Reader. Uh, The other fine folk, I guess, one of the germs. (laughs) And today we're talking about issues six and seven of Planetary, which was extra lifting for me because it is the end of trade one and the start of trade two. I don't know. I, I got to work out. It must have been confusing. You're reading a book and then you have to read another book. Oh my gosh. It's like homework. And I have been going kind of crazy in my new love affair all over again with Planetary and buying up all the single issues so I read it in my expensive omnibus, and then I bought some cheap copies of of the original issues, which I'm holding in my hand right now. What are the issues going for? They seem to go between 3 and $5 at stores around me. Okay, so kind of like used comic prices anymore, just a little above. Yes, you've been on a Fantastic Four uh, run. Or a binge, I guess is the right a word. A little bit, yeah. I've only read like six issues. Works perfectly with this first issue that we're going to look at. Yeah. Planetary number six, which is called Four, I believe. Yeah, which is confusing. Yeah, just the number four. How is How did you think of it as confusing? Well, because it's chapter six, but it, ah, it's that is four. True. That is confusing. But it's, the title says it's a strange, or... It's a strange world. Yeah, it's a strange world, and then four, a planetary story. Yeah, for some reason, I I thought the title was just four, but maybe it's 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 a strange world. It's also doubly confusing in the trade. Um, oh, okay. This is terrible podcasting, but in the trade, it's presented. You have the cover, and then you have this first page, and this first page is a full spread of a pixelated eyeball with uh, looking at the snowflake. And but that is that is the splash page of the original issue, right? But just next to the cover, without right. knowing, it just looks like another cover. Oh, I see. You're right. It looks like another cover. I was thinking it looks like an ad, a strangely like an ad to me at first. I did a double take. Like, is this because it doesn't look like a drawing, right? It looks like a digitally manipulated picture, right? I mean, I can tell it's drawn, and I'm. I'm not sure. It, yeah, it's an eyeball seeing the snowflake with the snowflake reflected in the pupil. I have to say, until my second or third read of it, I did not notice that that was the snowflake. Oh, okay. I didn't make that connection right away. I don't, I don't know why. Because, you know, sometimes when you look at a close-up of an iris, it kind of has these lines in it and stuff. I don't know. Anyway, I eventually realized it was the snowflake. So this issue, I mean, let's lay it right out there. This issue is about an evil Fantastic Four that exists in the planetary universe. And I guess thus in the Wildstorm universe. Wow. Wow. Jump to the lead. Um, No, you are not wrong, but I think the buildup here is actually 
fairly interesting because this is one of the planetary issues that actually plays on a different kind of um pop culture idea or maybe not even fully pop culture long before by the time we get to the fantastic four the issue is like two-thirds over so right well except that the cover and then the title four and the picture with four astronauts yeah yeah foreshadowing i don't know my mind jumped immediately to the fantastic four but maybe other people's minds would not well you're right with the cover and the title four but as far as the meat of the issue um, we open on the drummer talking about the space race in light right. of the Cold War. And so there's a lot made of Nazi scientists being brought to the U.S., how people are taking issue with that. Um, and people, by people, I mean planetary. It's a super paranoid narrative of a secret government on top of our government. I don't know if it's paranoid. Well, is it? <laughs> not paranoid in the in the case of this book but i feel like it's a reference to people's paranoid ideas about secret government cabals that are, have been floating around i mean now it's all a different kind of thing with QAnon, but it used to be a very popular idea that there was this secret government far above at a level they describe it here as 11 levels above the president's need to know um mm-hmm. So there, I don't know, when I was growing up in the 70s anyway, and maybe 80s, I always heard about these people who believed there was this secret government even the president didn't know about that was really running things. There is that, but it's also mixed in with these Nazi scientists coming in and helping us win the space race against the communist Russians. And also how, while there's all this forward-facing stuff about the more public stuff, the the manned space missions and whatnot. There's also this project Artemis that was doing a lot of work and a lot of for a lot of potential ne'er do wells or going wrong. Based on secret Nazi scientists that no one knew their names, who were lived with were the closest people to Hitler in the world and then were brought over to the US but in secret. That part's history. That's real. No, 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 no. There are real Nazi scientists who came over, but it's not that no one knows their names or that oh, they well, lived yeah. in close. So they mentioned the real life Nazi scientists mm-hmm. who came and helped us with the space race. And then they say there were some even more brilliant, super genius Nazi scientists that no one knew about right. who also came over. So it is still this secret shadow version of things above and beyond what anybody knows about for sure yeah and i don't know it's just weird that in the comic with planetary with their long like even elijah snow being alive for the entire century the idea that they're so disgusted that the u.s brought in nazi scientists when american history would show that if you were around before the war it wouldn't have been a big deal because we were on the brink of bringing in fascism ourselves i just it is right. a little weird to read. Well, and so weirdly, there's a there's a space there's two space races going on, and the secret one is far in advance of the um, real one because in the reality in the the one that the public knows about, we got mm-hmm. to the moon in 1968, right? Yes, it was 68. Um, but in this uh, one that no one knows about, they got to the moon in 1960. 
or maybe 61. But they were already on the moon when the four went on their mission, which never made it to the moon. And right. when they came back, they weren't human. Dun, dun, dun. Bum, bum, bum. They're the four. It's interesting because I think some of the things were shown while Drummer is narrating their history. Mm-hmm. If I can find it. Because they, they interleave the drummer sort of giving a... Um, a uh, what do you call it when you prep people before they go on a mission kind of giving a presentation on everything they know about the four mm-hmm. so while he's speaking we and maybe oh these are supposed to be photographs that that they've uncovered that were taken so they on their way to the moon they encountered a snowflake in space right i.e. the snowflake that keeps the snowflake-esque image that keeps reoccurring in different ways in these stories not a real life snowflake of course so yeah they so instead of you know the fantastic four were changed by cosmic rays instead one presumes it's not said explicitly that they were transformed by this encounter with a snowflake but what's really interesting to that is as we see the snowflake as we have thus far it's blue with a potential like red in the center, like an offset, like a mm-hmm. uh, center vortex kind of deal. But when you flip over, when the four go through it, it becomes this like red, bloody. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't look so much like a snowflake anymore. Orphus. It also almost reminds me of like a, a churning thing, like they're being chopped up by it or something. Yeah. It looks bloody. It looks visceral. And then when their spaceship is found, I mean, our our, uh, narrative from the drummer uh, says they were no longer completely human. But what we see is their their spacesuits cut off just above the waist and some Mm -hmm. maybe goo or smoke gas in there. Right. So were they actually transformed into some, you know, have they, I couldn't tell from this picture First time I read it, I thought they were no longer in their spacesuits. They'd left the um, space capsule before it was picked up. Mm-hmm. But then I started to wonder, if are they this goo that appears coming out of the spacesuits? And they are just creatures of goo. I took it to mean like they're out of their spacesuits. We don't get to see their final form because we only actually see one of them in this comic. Right. Post the accident. Right. So I, I guess those are just ripped spacesuits. So that might just be the way it was drawn. And it's colored to be in black and white sort of sepia colors. Because wh- when it said they're no longer human and I just see this bottom half of spacesuits, I just wasn't sure what I was supposed to make of that. Like had they become lost their human form, but then they can take on a human form when they when they want to. So they, they are um, four characters who seem analogs for the familiar reed richards ben Grimm, johnny storm and sue storm and they are uh the the lead guy is uh, randall dowling a physicist Mm. who looks a bit like reed richards and then there's jacob green the pilot which they give him jack kirby's first name oh and i made that connection i don't know if they intended that uh jack kirby's real name was uh, Jacob Kurtzman or Kurtz something Kurtzberg right. or Kurtzman I can't remember but for the sake of the story they couldn't give him any Jewish sounding name 
Right. That's true. They're supposed to be Nazis. <laughs> and William Leather is the flight engineer. And I keep that name is so specific. I keep feeling it's a reference to something. Mm-hmm. And then um, Kim Suskind would be the blonde Sue Storm type, although she has her hair tied up in a tight bun. And she is the daughter of one of these original unknown, unnamed super German scientists. Mm-hmm. Which implies to me these, I, I was wondering if Randall Dowling was supposed to be one of the original German scientists, but maybe not. He's a physicist, engineer, you name it. List of disciplines as long as your arm. I think later they say he, they might have let Dowling be the American Einstein if not for his background, but they don't tell us what his background is. So that's why I thought he might be one of the Nazi super scientists. I mean, even if he's not one of the Nazi super scientists, right. he's in lineage of. They all he's are. He's in the lineage. Right. He's part of their secret world. And Leather, the guy who is the Johnny Storms stand in, uh, William Leather, uh, has a hazy history hinting at involvement in exotic airplane design. And there was a woman in Florida who swore to the, her dying day that she and Leather were the last people to ride in the Nautilus in 1959. And the Nautilus, of course, is from the um, Jules Verne novel, 2,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which would have been invented when, I forget when that novel came out, but it was supposed to be, you know, it was, it was uh, Jules Verne predicting the invention of the submarine, in a sense. And so, again, we get this incredible pull of all these ideas of politics to explorers to futurism being weaved throughout even with some of the smaller references like the amount of work and detail that's going in here is pretty incredible right it's very dense i found of the issues we've read recently i found this one of the i had to reread it reread uh the overview that that drummer is giving us a couple of times to, to kind of track it all and sort of intermixed with that story we have uh jikita and um elijah snow going to the four voyagers plaza which we find out they have located as one of the secret labs of the four um from from their adventure on monster island or island zero as it's called in this comic so apparently i mean they didn't tell us about that in the issue of uh, island zero but apparently there were clues there that led them to learn more about the the hidden places, or at least some of the hidden places of the four. Kind of on the nose that we never figured that they might be in a place, a, a giant building called the Four Voyagers Plaza. But anyway, so it's kind of like the Baxter building. Kind of, yeah. I, what kind of struck me about this too is, I think it would be easy to read this as like a... Uh parody or like a take on the fantastic four and how there could be a negative tone to it but what's really telling here is that this is the fantastic four taken and perverted very intentionally with a number of things like it's very knowing in that way in a way that i don't think plays on parody but on playing with the principle in a way this is replacing the idea of using a Superman as a jumping off point, but pointing more to the Marvel age is when uh, this new idea kind of 
swings in. It also, it kind of retrofits the Fantastic Four into our world. Right. Even though this is the Wildstorm world, it explains how there could have they could have been going on a flight to the moon in 1961, even though we never did it till 1968. Hmm. And how um, they could have come back with superpowers, but we don't know about it. So they, the, the, this is a Fantastic Four that could exist in our world. So it's a kind of an interesting thought experiment of like, how would you fit these kinds of superheroes into our world? Well, and I got a more visceral political sense of this than from the Fantastic Four life story comics that have been coming out. Yeah, and it also explains how would you pay for all of this? They're pl- they are siphoning off black ops money from the U.S. And that's where this, you know, because in life story by the Fantastic Four, if I remember correctly, they just on their spare time built a spaceship. Sure, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Where'd the money come from? <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, I feel like it's clever. I do wonder, is he is he taking a stand against Marvel Comics here? But probably not. It's just, I think, an interesting thought experiment for him. There's too many things that are playing on this idea, like if the Fantastic Four is done another way. Like there's a, there's a file on the four, and there's this etching around the four that's like turning it into a swastika. Also on the cover... They, it looks like maybe the a window of their spaceship has both a American flag and a Nazi Iron Cross. Mm-hmm. A lot of these things I don't notice on the first reading. Um, so there's a. Are we talking about something that that the that the planetary people have, or something they find? It's the planetary file. Oh yeah, so it's like it got smudged, and it's starting to look like the Nazi swastika. Brilliant, brilliant coloring too, um, which separates the sort of the flashback from the current action. And this is one of the first issues where there is some all-out action with our superpowered characters, not just talking to somebody. Yes. Um, and when they're talking about that file, um, Snow says, "You know, I don't like killing people. I want to kill these people." After looking at the file, again, that's really showing that these characters are despicable Nazi types that had the opportunity to use this rocket. But th- this is the idea of the Fantastic Four used in a different way. This is not the Fantastic Four in any way. I was going to say at this same scene where Snow says the things these scum have cost us since 1961. I don't enjoy killing people. I want to kill these people. Although they've told us they are part of an old Nazi thing that the U.S. imported, they have not told us what this what these scum have done that he read that's so bad. And we're not going to. Right. You know. Which kind of left me wondering, does he know for sure what Planetary has done? I mean, <laughs> he will. Because the other thing is, by the end of this issue, I was thinking, or maybe they, maybe Leather, who they confront later, even says something like, "We're the other side of things that, than you." They're, the four are kind of similar to the three, and in fact, there's a supposed fourth man in planetary. Right, and and 
maybe, you know, who is actually the good guys here? We don't really know, although we've been told these people come out of the not a Nazi program, so it seems like they're clearly the bad guys. But anyway, I, I can't remember how that resolves, um, although I think they become clearly the bad guys. Well, what's more interesting, though, is this uh, leather character has been watching elijah snow and knows who he is and knows what he's about and seems to have more knowledge than snow has because there's a bit of amnesia we're playing they've met before and such right so there's something here and again it's uh, you know tied to a major war it's tied to these events we you know it's a it's a little piece in the greater mystery coming from here Elijah and Jakita wander through the not Baxter building, the four Voyagers building, or the penthouse laboratories. They see some stuffed subterraneans who are like the Moloids from Mole Man, Mm -hmm. um, the first villain of the Fantastic Four. They see a giant painting with a stairway going up to it of a cosmos, which kind of evokes, even on an even grander scale than one sees in the Fantastic Four, at least the versions I've read, that kind of portal they have going into the negative zone. And then um, when they come across Leather, he's he's uh, kind of stooped over some machinery in a really cool kind of futuristic technology setting with a, what later turns out to be a window. I thought it might be another portal. But I was struck by it because this is, you know, by now, I think, most experienced comic book readers at this point in the comic know it's the Fantastic Four, right? Mm. But this is all this wild machinery, and it does not look like Kirby tech. They're not. Um, so that's another one of my many tips of the hat to um, Cassidy. He manages to do this wild technology without directly re- referencing Jack Kirby, which is what most people have to do because Jack Kirby's machinery was so overwhelming it's hard for other people to think of something else uh, that's any good so i thought that was a really cool a particular favorite image of mine there so then uh, jakita fights fights leather and so leather must not only have kind of firepower but he must be very strong and hard to hurt Mm -hmm. she doesn't manage to hurt him and he kind of has blue flames um, and he just th- throws her out a window, which I guess is probably like 50 stories high or something. My guess on the thinking there is uh, blue is a hotter flame than Yes, I thought red. the same thing. Yeah, blue is ho- a hotter flame. Then your orange and red flames are not as hot. Um, yeah, so here he is full, full bore um, on fire. Sorry, I got excited. I saw an ad for Battle Chasers. <laughs> Is that a comic? Oh, yeah. Okay. Never finished. Never finished. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, we can save that for another podcast, I guess. Yeah. So when uh, Leathers removes his beard with his flaming finger, to me, that's a reference from, I think, Fantastic Four number four, where Johnny Storm finds Namor, the Submariner, as a bum in on Skid Row with a beard, and he uses his finger to burn off Namor's beard. Now, I'm assuming that's where they got that idea, but maybe 
and he right away knows who Jakita is and he knows who um, who Elijah Snow is. And they have a fight. Elijah fights dirty and kicks him between the legs. <laughs> Kicking the unmentionables, you've changed, Mr. Snow. You don't know me. Oh, yes, I do. I've known you for far too long. And we're leaving you alive because this new train of events amuses us. So it's like the four were never in any danger from him. Mm-hmm. And then it's he seems to sort of go supernova, or not supernova, but blazing hot, sort of almost blinding Elijah. And then we see a uh, almost fetus-like figure in the middle of the snowflake. I don't know if that's what Elijah's seeing or not. I don't know quite what we're supposed to get out of that one so it's interesting because this what is it it's issue seven or six this is the first time the snowflake the snowflake now seems to be almost as if it is it on the side of these evil people or they've harnessed it perhaps right we are all the things we are all the secret history of the planet for we are its secret chiefs for you to ask yourself some hard... It's time for you to ask yourself some hard questions, Mr. Snow. We'll overlook the, comp- the compromising of our New York lab. There are others, but do you really want to invite doom for yourself and others by continuing to investigate us? Do you really not remember us? Who benefits from your lack of memory? Who knows of the secret history of Elijah Snow? What are your teammates not telling you? And I guess that's the kind of implication that maybe who is the bad guys, the the four or the the four from planetary? Or are they all bad guys? <laughs> and I do think that is there, though I do think it is undercut by them being super Nazis. Right. That is a problem. So anyway, we, we have a new deepening of mysteries pointing more directly at Elijah Snow himself. Like mm-hmm. the, pers- the character who's trying to solve the mysteries is the mystery. He's kind of being forced to look at that fact, which he has never done of his own volition, right? He's never really in this comic said, who am I? Why am, why am I? What's going on here? Right. And he's only slightly admitted that he sometimes doesn't know. So, yeah, it was a very interesting issue, very um, kind of told both an extremely inconclusive story and then a very complete story of the history of the four and the the secret world beyond, uh, secret world beyond the, uh, the moon launch and everything that we know. Of. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all there. It's, there's a lot to unpack, but I think it's a lot of how you read it. Yeah, at first I did not really enjoy this issue. It actually took a couple of readings. It was one of the harder issues for me to unpack at first. And I'm not sure why, because now it seems pretty clear to me. But the first first time I read it, I, I maybe I was impatient and it was hard to read all the information they were throwing at you at once. It's a dense issue. And I feel like it's... it's well, in the very first issue, we had a brief appearance of an alternate world Justice League. Mm. But it's the first issue that's really focused on something that comes out of comics rather than movies or pulp fiction or that sort of thing. But it also paints the comics in a villainous tone, whereas the pulp heroes are more 
virtuous. Right. And I find that notable. Yes. <laughs> and and I think the issue next follows that pattern. Yes. Because it also addresses comics and a comic book a comic book world of sorts. Uh, more directly, I'd say. Right. Well, yeah, more immediately apparent to the experienced comic book reader of Vertigo Comics. It's uh, issue number seven looks exactly like one of those Sandman or Hellblazer covers mm -hmm. um, with the kind of collaged, mysterious, dark look to it with the mysterious writing on the cover. So it looks like a kind of looks like a cover of Hellblazer and also just evokes that kind of Sandman type of cover too. Very vertigo. And it, it starts with... Uh, Jakita saying Jack Carter's dead. And Drummer's happy about it. Drummer's happy about it. He says, good. He's a scumbag. Whereas Jakita says he's an old friend of ours who had a serious, serious connection to the occult underground. Real player in the 80s. Mm -hmm. All of this, the thematic thing is London in the 80s. That's in Warren Ellis's mind, the core maybe of the vertigo books. Mm -hmm. And I, I think he's including, cause vertigo didn't really start, I think till 90 or 91. He's including the late eighties books and the early nineties books. Well, cause a lot of, there was became... a lot of late eighties books that we now think of as vertigo that didn't yes. have that label. Yes. Such as starting with the swamp thing, which I think actually started in the early eighties. Um, and introduced Constantine. Right. And Constantine came out of that. And so, yes, this Jack Carter guy turns out to basically be a stand-in for Constantine, at least at first. <laughs> yeah, yes. So he, he doesn't have blonde hair, but he wears a trench coat and smokes a cigarette. Let's see, what, what was his, her description of him? Jack was everything you wanted London to be. He was funny, smart, and mysterious, sexy, and scary. And they have him, as he lights a cigarette, saying, All right, Squire? And I'm trying to think of what Constantine always said. It was something similar, but I don't think it was Squire. Snoochie boochies. <laughs> and now, I don't know. I, 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 I've never heard this before, but he, she says, You know what they say, if you're tired of London, you're tired of life. For me, Jack Carter was London. Yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> I felt like that might be part of a Warren Ellis British kind of thing. That's kind of what I thought is it felt like there, there was some Brit centric feeling going here. Right. Which is presumably fine. ironic. I assume he doesn't really think London is all of life, but I'm sure he heard someone say that. Like, I'm sure there's a few things you and I have heard of Chicago or New York that we would just take for granted. But if you went outside of the States, it would be, um, so we kind of get a back and forth between Jakita, who has positive memories of this guy, and Drummer, who doesn't, and, and Elijah Snow, who apparently has no knowledge of him at all, um, mm -hmm. as they wander through a graveyard, I presume somewhere in the London area where he's being buried. And I guess he was sort of linked to Planetary in some way. Uh, Drummer says, he was our window on England in the 80s. And maybe that means, you know, that John Constantine was comic book reader's window on London. Um, 
Although I imagine that Hellblazer was mostly a comic book of the 90s. But anyway, that's being picky. Um, lots of strange stuff went on here, even without the costume stuff. Costumed? There were superheroes in England? Sure, Jenny Sparks ran a team here in the 60s and again in the 80s. All went to hell, of course. And again, our only Wildstorm connection is Jenny Sparks. Right. Who gets, who's been referred to in a few other issues, hasn't she? Yep. And apparently we see a superhero fly across the moon while they're talking. I think there's some holdovers from that, too. One or two people wanting to do it right. You never quite get rid of the traditionalists. They're talking about superheroes. No matter how many condoms you sell. Jack let us in on that and all the other stuff. One of these days, you pains in the backside will speak a complete sentence that I don't have to ask another damn question about. Oh, that's, uh, that is uh, winter talk. I mean, uh, snow talking. They continue. They walk past two characters who look suspiciously like um, Neil Gaiman's Sandman and Neil Gaiman's death, sitting on a bench looking sad and feeding the pigeons. Yep, being emo. And isn't there a scene in where death shows up, where death and and dream feed pigeons? I'm not sure. There is. And then we get to the funeral itself, and there's a gathering of the oddball Vertigo and others kind of characters from... Others? Well, like the metal men are there. I don't think they were ever Vertigo characters. Is it just... I thought that was the metal men that were in um, uh, Doom Patrol. Where, did the metal men show up in Doom Patrol? I mean, there's Robot Man. Maybe I'm confusing it. Yeah. At first, I thought maybe that was Robot Man, the gold one. But then I see there's Platinum and Copper. Oh, okay. And then this might be a stand-in for the Demon, who did show up in occasional... Vertigo Comics, although he was a Jack Kirby 1972 or 73 creation. Right. I mean, Swamp Thing has been in and out. There's Swamp Thing and there's Animal Man or, you know, people standing in for them. There's other characters that I don't actually recognize. I think that's the Spectre back there. Right. I'd be hard-pressed to name a few more. I assume that's Solomon Grundy. Oh, Solomon Grundy, yeah. Is there a character like in the Doom Patrol or Invisibles with an upside-down face? That just seems like a Grant Morrison type of thing. Maybe. And one, I, I only managed on the web to f- find a few notes, but someone said that Grant Morrison was standing in this crowd and claimed that next to the Animal Man character is Grant Morrison. And I don't know if that's correct. Because um, I feel like Grant Morrison shows up later. <laughs> right. And I don't know, I never read Preacher. Is that related to Preacher, this guy giving the sermon? That would make sense. Um, There's a lot to spot. And we get a big Vertigo appearance at the end from... From one of our favorites. By yeah, from, from Ellis, yeah. Then Jakita tells another story about one, t- one story that, uh, I want to say Constantine, but uh, Jack Carter told her where he's walking down the street and he meets a spook who's literally a spook works for some British secret service, but he's also like a ghost or a ghostly figure. And he tells Jack Carter that he's off to kill a prostitute who's about to give birth to a Messiah. Am I right? Yeah. Does that sound right? And, and then apparently Jack Carter just casts a spell on him 
that traps the spook or whatever he is, invisible man, ghostly man, next to this uh, street corner. So he can't leave. He can't go off and uh, commit his murder. And he, I guess he can't ever leave. And eventually he starves to death. So he wasn't really a ghost. Because in the present, uh, I guess it's not too far from the cemetery where this happened. Because we walk by and we see a ghostly skeleton still on that street corner, presumably years later. And that's playing off of Freak Street, right? Tell me what Freak Street is. Wasn't that a Vertigo book? I don't know. It might have been. It says Greek Street. If there were, I mean, there were a lot of Vertigo books, and I don't know all of them. Maybe it was just Greek Street. Yep, that was a Vertigo book. There was a Vertigo book. Okay, interesting. That was that came out after this did. Oh, funny. In the two thousands. Two thousand nine. Was it by Warren Ellis? Um, Peter Milligan. And it was Greek Street or Geek Street? Greek. Huh. So maybe Milligan was playing playing around with uh, with Ellis. So then they're walking around. They walk past that skeleton, and they're still talking. And then uh, apparently, drums or the drummer can also use his skill that helps him find machines and talk to patterns and mathematical things to find magic, which he explains is just the cheat codes of the world, as opposed to the cheat codes in a computer game or or hacking a computer. Right. Magic is the cheat codes for the world, sending a signal to reality's operating system. See, and he uncovers one of those uh, demonic stars inside a circle. Pentagram. Sorry? It's a pentagram. Pentagram, right. Sorry. Can't think of these names. Just putting it in. So, and then I forget why, but uh, um, Elijah Snow freezes the street. Well, Drummer's pulling it up, but he's having trouble getting the full residency. It'll be easier if it's colder. He says, Snow, can you make it colder here? It might help settle down and cohere. Mm-hmm. And I found it what a couple things in this panel where we see si- a silent panel where he's frozen the street is he managed to not freeze the spot where his two friends or colleagues are standing. Mm-hmm. So everything froze, but that so he has very precise control of what he freezes. And this and the street sign says Moorcock, which is not a dirty thing. Michael Moorcock is a very famous British writer, likes comics. He created Elric and is probably friends with all these British comic book writers. And in in England is quite respected as a literary writer, not for his Elric work, but for other things he's written. In America he's he's not well known in the literary world. So I just thought it was interesting they put a Moorcock Street in here. Um, And I don't know if it's a reference to a scene in a Moorcock novel or anything like that here. And so after they do that, uh, they find the sort of astral trace of um, the remains of Jack Carter or the remains of a spell of Jack Mm -hmm. Carter faking his death. And at that point, a giant overmuscled roided out (laughs) Superman analog lands Mm -hmm. and says, no, I won't have it. I won't have it. I killed him. And this is where what I was talking about in the last issue comes forward, where if we go forward a page, he talks about how things used to be simple, but 
he had this sexual orientation change. He had all these like horrible things happen to him to basically to make him more interesting, but made his life absolute misery, right. which is interesting because if you're thinking the eighties in comics, right. It's a reference to things that Frank Miller and Alan Moore did to superheroes in a sense, or mm-hmm. kicked off doing superheroes, I think. And this plays to a line that Snow had earlier in the comic when we were looking at the Vertigo cast and said, uh-huh. don't they look a bit ridiculous? And Janika right. says, well, maybe now, but what age is that well over a decade? And <laughs> it's about what they did in their time. But now we're seeing someone who was from before that time who had to live through that time. And be transformed. Right. And so that's an interesting pull for comics which is in planetary's world separated from the pulp characters in that way it's it's a very comical scene although sad for this guy i don't want to have to wake up in soho with 12 volumed up rent tie rent boys and terrible stains on my tights you didn't have to take the damn photographs i didn't want to find out that instead of getting my powers from a transcendent scientist mentor I was grown from the DNA of Aryan super-athletes and Hitler's personal sex midgets. I didn't even know Hitler had personal sex midgets. So it's very over the top. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they refer to that in England there were some superheroes in the 60s and then again in the 80s, I think, well, I saw someone online conjecturing that was a reference to Miracle Man or Marvel Man, as he was originally called, who was around in the 60s and then was brought back in the 80s where Alan Moore did all these things to him, made him grow up, so to speak. Well, you could also point to Animal Man. True, but Animal Man wasn't in England, was he? No, but he's part of this Vertigo Mayu that we're playing in right now. Well, true, true. But I was thinking they were saying, oh, there were superheroes in England? I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, not everything is one for one to each other, but it is, again, these desperate um, media connections played through with the theme and are all referenced within the comic. Again, it's very tight. Well, because of the Vertigo thing and the Alan Moore thing, I was thinking of... The Miracle Man, uh, Marvel Man thing made sense that because makes it was sense both well. a 60s and then a 80s comic that was purely in England and most Americans didn't know it ever existed. It, it could also be a reference to Animal Man. Well, I'm saying it all works here, right? Like it all plays through. I mean, it also is just a reference in general to the to the late 80s uh, deconstruction of superheroes. Mm-hmm. To the extreme in this case. I don't think Alan Moore even had Sex any of his people wake out with a bunch of uh, Thai, Thai what, you call, what are they called? Thai rent boys um, with terrible stains on his tights. <laughs> wow. And then he gets shot and his guts blow out and Jack shows up. Only he looks entirely different. (laughs) But it's funny because, again, it's like a trench coat and the cigarette and all that. Right. A different style of trench coat, though. Almost more of a Nazi trench coat or something. I don't know. Or a duster. Yeah. Um, You know, it's all buttoned over to the side and very tight. And Anyway, um, 
So apparently he has shaved his head and put on this sort of different style coat. And my first thought is he looked like uh, a latter-day latter day Grant Morrison. Okay. Because of that bald head and kind of a severe look. Like I'm kind of a bit of more of an oddball or something. I don't know the right way to put that. So all of this, his death was faked so that he could entrap this Superman-like character and kill him. Right. Although, given how easy the Superman character was to kill, it seems a bit elaborate. But anyway, it gave Warren Ellis an excuse to do his semi-piss take on all of the Vertigo comics. And then he, um, he throws away that trench coat and reveals himself to just be wearing a suit jacket and black pants with no shirt and have a tattoo over his chest that makes him look suddenly a lot like Spider... What's Spider's name? Jerusalem. Spider Jerusalem from from Transmetropolitan. Right. Which is weird because that means we're taking Constantine, basically, and then turning him to... Spider Jerusalem. Yeah, to Spider Jerusalem, which was also Ellis, and moving that forward, it's just a, it's a weird take, but what's also interesting is it makes those tattoos kind of bring on a mystical feel or idea. Right. As opposed to just being And it seems like he's telling us, those of us who know enough (laughs) about his work, that uh, my transmetropolitan transcends above (laughs) the... um, the vertigo books that it came out of i don't know if it tr- it's about tr- you know time to move on from your constantines and your and your swamp things to trans to spider jerusalem and trans metropolitan well i wonder if that's what he's saying as much as what he's saying here is more like my work in transmet may not hold up 10 years from now but it was representative of the time that it was in much like the Vertigo stuff is. But he, he physically is having it replace a leading Vertigo character. Right? He's having a leading Vertigo character turn into his character. But all that all that change is tied to a new decade. And we have very, like, these marked moments in time uh, coming through with the Century Babies. And now this, and it's like, the it, this is, Vertigo was the 80s. Transmet was very clearly in the 90s, and so is this new era. Right. Of course, a lot of Vertigo that he's making fun of really was in the 90s. But he was the late 90s, and they were the early 90s, I suppose. Yeah, which makes it even weirder. So, But he says, the 80s are long over. Time to move on. Time to be someone else. Right. It, it's perfectly fine that he's doing this, but I just think it's it's a bit egotistical or kind of uh, perhaps just poking fun at his fellow writers. I mean, obviously, at this point, Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore were still active comic book writers. Maybe not Neil Gaiman, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, I don't think so. He probably saw them at conventions, or at least Neil Gaiman, who, who you know, I know is quite active in going to conventions and stuff. Unless it's Denver. Not since what? I said unless it's Denver, he pulled out because whatever. Because he heard you were going to be there? I, he was going to be, and then he pulled out after we announced it. It was a freaking nightmare. And you had paid him a lot of money? Was that We had to raise some god-awful amount of money. And it was all going to go to a charity, but 
in order for him to look at an appearance you have to put up a serious amount of money mm-hmm. so that it's not some flippant thing i guess but so i just did a quick flick over to wikipedia and transmetropolitan ran from 1997 to 2002 and this comic came out in 2000 so in a sense oh geez that does make it even more so he is i mean it started in 97 and went to 2002 so he is thinking of spider jerusalem as the character of right now when he was writing it yeah that's ballsy so i mean it's it's for us it's all fun but it is kind of funny thinking of you know how he's tooting his own horn in a different comic it is and of course grant morrison was is still around now to some extent and was definitely very active um at this point he was probably was this around the time when he was doing those seven seven soldiers of victory or something like that? Somewhere in around there, yeah. And then he says, cheers, I'll be seeing you, and he walks off into the shadows. So this may be either just a fun jaunt for um, for Warren Ellis to play, just play, take an issue off to play and make a joke on Vertigo, or maybe he's setting this character up to be a player later. Um Again, I if I ever knew, I can't recall. <laughs> yeah. So those are two comics in a row, I guess, that, that make fun of comics. Much more making fun of Vertigo than the Fantastic Four, really, even though the Fantastic Four are evil Nazis. Right. Well, the tone's so much lighter in here. It feels more like parody, more like poking fun and playing with the characters more directly. Like this was Constantine by another name. Exactly. It was so close and made fun of, especially just all the other characters besides Constantine. Now, the Swamp Thing has a woman growing out of him. And I Poison don't, Ivy? I don't. Was there a time when Poison Ivy was physically latched onto him, or is that just a goof that maybe John Cassidy was playing? Who knows? I think the red hair makes it pretty clear it's supposed to be Ivy, though. And I'm noticing now, looking back at that big group picture of of all the uh, vertigo characters one of them it looks like maybe a tree is growing out of a suit i didn't notice that before anyway just another sign of how i keep seeing more stuff every time I both of these issues had brilliant brilliant work by um, cassidy and he's i don't know he's constantly uh, and who knows how much was in the script by by ellis but he's constantly sort of doing different things with different kinds of scenes. And and so it's like the artist and the colorist have really thought about how to, how to present different parts of the story. And so at times when I feel a little annoyed with, um, with Ellis, I, I feel like the art can carry me through. Like in the Fantastic Four issue, I got a little bogged. Like I said, it took me a while. I got a little bogged down, but the art was so great. Yeah, the art in this series is fantastic, which, given where these people were in their careers at the time, was just even a bigger stroke of luck. Like, you rarely get anything this next level. Very, very true. And I don't... um, Is this peak... Is this the peak for Cassidy, or did he... I mean, I remember enjoying his artwork in the Josh Whedon series he did. Mm Mm-hmm. And in a few other Marvel things I've seen him do, I guess I haven't seen a lot of his work outside of those two pieces, Planetary and Astonishing X-Men. 
Yeah, I mean, he's done a handful of other things, but I mean, those are his biggest works. And funnily enough, Joss Whedon did an intro to the second volume of Planetary, which uh, the seventh issue was in. Probably was published before Astonishing? Yeah, I believe so, though I have to believe that there had to have been some rumblings or something that was part of the reason it happened. Because before that, I don't know what would prompt them to get him to do a comic book forward or how they'd bother to get him continues to be very i keep waiting for like a shoe to drop like what if what if i don't love planetary as much as i think but so far i'm feeling good about it i feel like even if you don't love this as much as you think there's so much in every issue and there's so many details and nuances to like pick out that even if you don't love some of the plot, some of the telling, some of the storytelling, some of the art is going to more than carry you through than a number of other things. I just, and also when issues are this tight, I don't know, it's just hard to not appreciate just the craft alone. I, I don't know, it's interesting because I was looking at the publication date and I mean, this comic was always a slow burn. You mean in terms of how long it took each issue to come out? Yeah, at its most regular was bi-monthly. Yeah, let's see. Issue 6 is listed at November 1999. And issue 7 in the Indicia is January 2000. So that's bi-monthly, I guess. November to January. Ellis was doing a lot. So at this time, he was writing Planetary. He was still writing Authority. And he was writing Transmetropolitan. And who knows what else he was writing. But that's three major things going on at the same time. Yeah, I think he was done with Stormwatch. Well, didn't Stormwatch turn into Authority, or was he writing two titles in that? Authority came out of Stormwatch, and particularly his run of Stormwatch, but Stormwatch continued after him. Okay, well, that makes sense, yeah. I think. I, I could swear it did. Stormwatch was the longest-running Wildstorm title I believe, except for Wildcats. And I think it went further than Wildcats, but I'd have to look it up. But uh, that's a long run. <laughs> well, anyway, this was great. Um, thanks for staying up late to talk about this with me. One of the problems of doing this podcast is, as the only time we're both free at the same time is, is usually after 10 o'clock Matt's time and after 9 o'clock my time. So um, we're always a little tired as we're doing it. We're sleepy readers. So next time we will do issue eight and nine. I think we're returning to other genres outside of comics, at least in issue eight. I'm not sure what's in issue nine. Yeah, but it should be a fun jaunt. And then we're looking at crossovers. The one kind of reader who might not like Planetary is someone who really loves the stories of character, because this is so much more about like what ideas will they play with next, I feel. There's a little character in the background, but not a lot. Issue by issue. I could see a lot of people not liking Planetary. Because I feel like to appreciate Planetary, you kind of have to have an understanding of kind of the pulp characters and a fair amount of like That's comic true. history and or just pop culture history. Like this is very much a comic for adults 
and not in the way that's normally meant at all. But I, I think you need to have absorbed a lot of ideas and culture to kind of get sure. where this is going. And without those threads, I, I d- don't know what to tie together. If, you, if this was one of the first comics you read and you hadn't known all about Hell, Hellblazer and Sandman and Animal Man you might think this is a pretty darn strange and confusing comic. Well, and th- I mean, we're comic book super right. fans, basically. I mean, even if you had a passing knowledge of Constantine, I think that'd be enough to at least appreciate it on some level. Right. But there are people who don't have a pass, especially at this point in time. You know, you might, mm-hmm. you, you could imagine this planetary series because it's so highly rated falling into someone's lap who's maybe only read one or two other sort of well-known graphic novels and gives this a try. Well, it was a book I was afraid to return to for a long time because I kept feeling like I need to reread Planetary when I already know everything and I can come back and appreciate all the nuances. What's funny is I'm reading it now and the issues where it's in my wheelhouse, I feel like I'm getting everything. I know there's like a couple Vertigo bits mm-hmm. i missed like some of those characters i didn't know necessarily who they were or whatnot and i also knew enough to know that it was vertigo that they're going for specifically i mean that's a big you know key in because maybe you didn't know that vertigo cliched cover look the first time you read it i right. don't know and that would be really hard to come to now even if you were catching up on constantine lucifer and sandman right. and all that the covers aren't necessarily in the collections. Oh, that's an interesting problem. And so it wouldn't connect, and the trade covers are a completely yeah. different style. That's true. So. I res- I've i got all of the Sandman absolutes. I'm going to look at those. But of course, that wouldn't, the average person would get the paperback trade. But do you have the absolutes and the annotated? <laughs> I haven't read these. I do not have the annotated, so you have upped me on the uh, Sandman. My, I, I went deep on Sandman. I got the absolutes, I got the annotations, and then I have, I think it's three books about ah. Sandman. Well, that's nice. Sandman's good that way that there's so many books about it. It's achieved that level. I do wish there was, like I, we've said before, something. I, I have found a book of essays about Planetary. Oh, that would be excellent. And so I got it on Kindle, and I've started reading it. But each article covers the entirety of planetary and since i'm trying not to spoil what's coming i started like skimming through this article looking when they mentioned issue one or two or three or something oh i see issue 20 i'm not looking at that no 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 so it doesn't go issue by issue it's like might be worth waiting to read that one (laughs) right maybe we'll talk about that at or i'll talk about that when we get to the end the other well another interesting thing is i mean I haven't edited, up to this point, I haven't edited any of these episodes yet, so none of them are out. But I mentioned on one of my vlogs on my YouTube channel uh, that we were working on this project, and I got a lot of comments from people who said, oh, I read part of Planetary, didn't finish it, and oh, it's a great book, and I've always meant to get back to it. And I'm excited you're doing it as Mm -hmm. a podcast. That'll force me to read it. (laughs) So there's something about the density of it that makes it perhaps... Of course, there's also the timing of the way it came out. Well, outside of Planetary, can you think of a number of books that are intimidating to approach 
because I feel like it it's relatively unique in that I feel almost everyone holds it in a certain light that almost makes it harder to read because you can't just read an issue of Planetary. You have to do your homework. And I think also if you stop reading it, I mean, there's other books that are like this, but if you stop reading it, you very much feel like you have to go back to the beginning because you, if you've read part of it, you realize, oh, there's clues throughout that I need to remind myself of. Right. And that's interesting. And it's funny because reading it now, I think this is as far as I ever got. And so I'm really interested to read more. And I never read any of the crossovers, so I'm really excited to get there. And it's actually been a lot more approachable than I thought. Okay, well, we will be back from the dead soon. And we will do issues of 8 and 9 Planetary. And there will be even more to come after that. We're having fun. <laughs>